Amen. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Amanda. Worship team. It's great to have Jason Martin back, but the team has done a fantastic job in his absence. Super thankful for them. Uh, good to see you, church. How are we doing? All right, I'll take your word. If you join us online, welcome you. Glad you're joining us this way, but we'd love to connect with you in person. And if you know somebody who's at home, uh, can't be here, um, just make a mental note of that and um, consider checking in on them this week. I'm sure they'd appreciate that. Uh, just a couple things before we get started. Um, first of all, I just wanted to highlight Friday night was a great time to get together um, for our fall kickoff. So some of you were here. Some of you helped pull it off. Like it was all hands on deck and just a lot of serving and getting tables and everything ready and the meal and all those sorts of things and then cleaning up afterwards. Um, so those of you who were here, you know, but if you weren't, just think a little quick picture there. Students and kids hung out outside in the heat while we were in here going over the vision for the fall and then had time of worship and then we ended with a meal together. And so if you missed that, uh, just make a mental note. We do this every year. So you got 12 months to prepare for the next one. Uh, but those of you who made it, it was great to spend time with you. Um, also want to remind you this afternoon at four, we have an all members meeting. Uh, hope you have already, uh, if you're a member here, and block that time out on your calendar at four o'clock. It'll be from like four to five. Uh, it's a special call, all members meeting. Uh, we're going to be giving a significant staff update. We're going to be giving a year-to-date report on finances and then giving you an update um, on the new elder uh, candidate process. So we've got a lot to announce to you tonight. I hope you can make it at four o'clock this afternoon in this room. All right, we are ready to start a new series. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Malachi. I don't know how many times you've read Malachi or studied Malachi or even heard that name. Some of you are thinking children of the corn. Uh, that, was, that was Mordecai. That's a different, different character altogether. Uh, the book of Malachi is a really interesting book. Um, it is the last book in the Old Testament. So the book, the Bible's got, uh, it's made up of 66 books, 39 of which are in the Old Testament. Uh, the last author to have a word before the Old Testament closes out is Malachi. And I think it's uh, we're going to see how specific and how ordained it is that God puts Malachi at the end of the Old Testament uh, before we go into like 400 years of silence uh, before the, the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, God begins to speak through another author. And so a couple of things interesting about Malachi. One, it's really this, this book of, of outlining a discussion between God and his people, and there are going to be six things that God's going to bring up uh, to confront Israel on uh, and then invite them back to himself through. Um, and so we'll walk through all of those together in the series, but what's really interesting about the book of Malachi is how those things are put together uh, in a certain sequence. It actually follows the outline of the gospel and that it begins with um, God uh, declaring his love for them and then out of that, he's gonna be inviting them to return to him with a heart of worship and then out of that, God is going to confront the, their morality, and then it's going to end with probably the only passage you've ever heard taught in Malachi about tithing, okay? And it's so important that we go in that order and don't flip that backwards, uh, because what can typically happen, especially in the church, is that we can talk about giving a lot, and then we can talk about morality, and then we can talk about the heart of worship, and then, oh yeah, don't forget God loves you. And when we do that, what we end up doing is selling a false gospel that somehow if you want God's love, you've got to do all this other stuff first. You've got to give your money. You've got to make sure all your morality is in order. 
You've got to make sure that your worship is in order, and then God gives you his love. But that's not the gospel. The gospel begins with who God is and his love for you. And so that's how the book of Malachi, we'll see to this morning, starts with um, God declaring his love. Um, just some historical context, the book was written somewhere around mid to early 5th century B.C., um, and this is going to be after a time of persecution for the nation of Israel. Um, it was somewhere around 587 B.C. Um, that uh, the nation of Israel was devastated uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. You may know that name or have heard that name. Uh, and then they end up going into 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Okay, so after that, they're released, they're set free, uh, and to return back to their homeland to rebuild. And, uh, and so now the book of Malachi comes about 100 years after that coming home. So that just gives you some historical context for where we are in the nation of Israel. Uh, some things going on in the nation at this time. Uh, their hearts had become indifferent to the Lord. They were still going through the motions of worship and religious practices, but their hearts were very indifferent, complacent, uh, even apathetic. Uh, their priests had become really corrupt and were really leading the way in this and were actually accepting just really, really um, dishonoring sacrifices from the people. They were endorsing this false worship of the people. The men were divorcing. The divorce rate was sky high and the Israelite men were leaving their Israelite wives and taking wives from other nations and, and then taking the gods of other nations. So it wasn't just about divorce, it was about going after false gods. Um, they were no longer, as I mentioned earlier, giving their tithes uh, to the Lord, and ultimately they were minimizing and redefining God's laws. They were calling that which was good evil and that which was evil good. Okay, so that's kind of just some context for the book of Malachi. Now what we're going to do is we're going to get into the first five verses today, uh, starting with verse 1. Mike read this earlier. Verse 1 says this. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So the, the name Malachi, it's actually somewhat of a play on words because it means messenger. That's what his name means. Okay, and so he's, he's, his name is Malachi, but he's going to be acting now as a messenger to the Lord's people. Um, but what I think is interesting about this phrase, this first opening verse, is that it's the oracle of the word of the Lord. So that word oracle um, would translate either a prophecy, but in the Hebrew language, it would also be the word used to describe a burden. So this is going to be the burden of the Lord shared through Malachi to God's people, that whatever's going on in the nation of Israel, it's burdening the Lord's heart. It's really important. We've pointed this out before when we read the scriptures to, to not just assume we know what's going on in God's heart. Let's look for the evidence of what's going on in his heart. And at this time, he's coming to the nation of Israel with a heavy heart. And so this is the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi the messenger. And here is his message. I have loved you, says the Lord. I think that's really significant. The first burden that God shares with them is that he wants to clear the record, I have loved you. 
Now, that's going to follow with a question to indicate that they had come to a place where they quit believing that. But this is the first thing that God wants to set straight with the nation of Israel. I have loved you. Now, we'll talk more as this unfolds. This is not I love you in the moment kind of love. It's I have loved you. Okay, so it's not like God just woke up today with these warm, fuzzy feelings for Israel and going, you know what? I love you. No, what God is declaring is much bigger than that. This is a reference to his covenant love for them. This is going to go, go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. When he says, I have loved you, this is not I just love you with emotion in the moment, but I have loved you with a covenant love. Love can be a burden, can't it? When you love someone who turns their back on you. And this is the burden of the Lord here. So before he addresses them turning his back, their back on him, he starts with this. I have loved you. And my love for you is a heavy burden because you've turned your back on me. Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 6, describes God's covenant love for Israel. We'll unpack this more as the sermon goes on, just how far back this love goes. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 6, here's a description of God's covenant love for Israel. Listen to the wording. Try to imagine somebody who loves you saying this to you. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were actually the fewest of all the peoples. There's nothing about you that invoked the Lord's love. Nothing about you that caused God to choose you. Matter of fact, you were the least among the choices. Verse 8, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath, the covenant promise that he swore to your father's that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now, one of the struggles that the nation of Israel is having right now is they're looking at life through human lenses. And even some of the struggle you may have with what we're about to read would be caused by simply looking at this passage through human eyes or through the, the lens of humanity. 
we hear, I love you, and if we're not careful, we'll filter that through the lens of humanity and what we've experienced in life, and when people have told us that or not told us that, and what that feels like. But what the picture that's being painted is so much bigger than that. It's the idea that the one who is saying that he loves you, loved you before you ever were. It's not that he's just in a good mood today and you're on his good side. He loved you before you ever existed. And that's when he made an oath. That's when he made a promise. That's when he made a covenant to love you. And so their question back in verse 2 is, but you say, how have you loved us? So they're not just explicitly saying we don't believe you, but indirectly that's what they're saying. Prove it then. How have you loved us? Where's the proof that you have been loving us faithfully according to your promises? Now, if we pay attention to what's going on in the nation, it gives us some insight. As I mentioned earlier, the country was totally devastated um, in the early 6th century B.C., and there was a time of captivity. Then they were released about 100 years before this was written. But then even after they were released about 20 years later, so about 80 years before this was written, God spoke through the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and encouraging them to rebuild the temple with God's promised blessing. And that they would experience prosperity and expansion and peace and, and even this, that, that the, the blessing of the Lord would extend to the nations. And so that was the promise made. They've come home. God says, hey, rebuild. Rebuild the temple. Rebuild your city. Rebuild your lives. Restore my word to center, and I will bless you. And then 80 years later, the book of Malachi. And the people were not just indifferent. They were indignant. They had started to blame God for their circumstance. If you loved us, life wouldn't be so hard. If you loved us, things wouldn't be going the way they are which is interesting. I was thinking about just a simple illustration to kind of illustrate what's happening here. So parenting. Uh, I don't know what your parenting strategies are for discipline. Uh, we found a very effective one in our home. It's uh, no Xbox. So that was easy. Hey, no Xbox. Nobody had to yell. No Xbox. Now imagine um, I ground my sons from Xbox for the week for not doing their chores. Okay, my father's heart in that is not to get back at them. But my father's heart is I actually want to grow them, right? I want to grow them in responsibility and let them know, like, to, this is a privilege, and to earn privileges, like, you've got to be responsible, and I asked you to do this, and you didn't. But imagine halfway through that week, if they came to me and said, hey, Dad, we think you've been being too hard on us. Tell you what, we're, we've agreed. We've got together, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna follow your rules but in order to do that, you've got to prove your love to us by ungrounding us from the sacred Xbox. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you, this is very unloving of you. And so if we really believe that you loved us, we would do the chores, but we're not going to do the chores until you prove your love for us. So you can do that now by ungrounding us from the sacred Xbox. No, now you're grounded for two weeks. Okay, this is, this is what's going on in the nation of Israel. 
They didn't follow the Lord's instructions when they came back. They didn't rebuild the temple in a way that restored God's glory in the nation. They didn't restore God's word to center. They were calling things that were good evil and things that were evil good, and they were doing what was wise in their own eyes, and life was getting hard because of that. And so their complaint was, when have you loved us? Prove your love to us by making things easy. Then we'll return to morality and bringing you the tithe and hearts of worship, and then we'll believe that you actually love us. And so what God is going to do next is he's going to refer to um, a story that happened in the book of Genesis relating to two brothers, Jacob and Esau. This is the last part of verse 2. It says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? And he's going to draw a distinction here, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. I'm going to stop there and we'll come back to verse 5. So let me just give you some kind of background here, what's going on. So when God was asked to prove his love, he's going to point back to this story. So something in this story is going to give us an indication of God's covenant love. And so it goes back into the history of Israel itself. So the nation at this point in time is called Israel. They're also referred to as the, the Jews or the Hebrews. But the nation began really with one man and one woman, Abraham and Sarah. And this is where God first promised to do the things that he's promising to do here. He told Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to turn your family into a great nation. And if you remember the time, his wife was barren. So he ends up having a son through his concubine first, Ishmael, and then after correction from the Lord, ha actually has a miraculous son through his wife Sarah. And so now we have this miracle that's the beginning of a nation. You have Abraham now has Isaac. And so you actually have two brothers. Ishmael becomes um, essentially the father of the Islam nation, okay? And then Isaac, the father of the Israelites, okay? Next generation. Now Israel, or not, excuse me, let me back up. Now Isaac uh, is going to start to have children, but his wife's barren. So we have another miracle. And so in this miracle, she's actually conceives and has twins. And the twins are Jacob and Esau. Okay, that's what's being referred to here. So we're three generations into this promise. And what we're going to see is, again, through these two brothers, we're going to see two kind of splits, national splits. Okay, Esau is going to become the father of the Edomites. That's what's being referred to here. While Jacob is going to go on to be the father of the nation of Israel. And so... What's going to happen here, I'm going to back up into Genesis and just read a couple of verses that kind of shares a little bit about this moment and when um, Rebekah is barren and Isaac is going to pray for his wife. This is in Genesis 25, we'll start at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, I don't know, but I would assume that dad passed on the story of when right, Isaac's mom was barren. Hey, God can do this. 
God does miracles. Actually, Isaac, you're a miracle. Your mother was barren. So now here he is. He's going to the Lord. He's praying for the same miracle for his wife. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. Now, this not only are these two brothers going to kind of go on two different courses and, and father two different groups of people, but the struggle is already present in the womb. The, the children w- struggled within her, together within her, and she said, if it is thus, if it's this way, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. It's like, hey, I know I asked to get pregnant. This is miserable. There were some, uh, some, some moms talking back behind the stage. I walked into the, the room back there, and they were talking about the uncomfortableness of having a baby when they start elbowing and punching. And, and sometimes you're like, hey, you've got to start parenting in utero. Like, hey, quit that. You know, like, I don't know. I've never been pregnant, but it sounds really uncomfortable. This lady's got two of them, and they're wrestling. So she's going, God, I know I asked for this, but come on. This is painful. And so she inquired of the Lord. And he explained to her in verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. The two peoples from within you shall be divided. And one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so they were twins. Esau was born first, so he had the birthright. Uh, Through a series of events, you can go read this in the book of Genesis. Jacob ends up stealing, conniving the birthright from his brother. And then later on, the Lord comes to Jacob in the middle of the night and wrestles with him. And after that, the Lord changes his name to Israel, which means one who contends with God or wrestles with God. And that's the beginning of this nation. So now God is going to explain his covenant love or point to his covenant love and answer the question how he has loved them by pointing back to this story. So what is it about this story? We get insight in the book of Romans. This is in the New Testament, chapter 9 of Romans. Paul actually mentions this story too. And I think it's going to help us with this, this statement, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Does anybody struggle with that? Okay. So we go to Romans 9. Starting in verse 9, Paul is writing and he's referring to the promise. He says this, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. That's the promise of Abraham, okay? And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, so this is the next generation, the next miraculous conception, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So before they were born, in order, this is a really important phrase, that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now our struggle with that phrase is mostly because we hear it and we filter it through a human lens. When we hear the words love and hate, we're thinking about those experiences as a human. In the moment I love you and in the moment I hate you. Have you ever hated somebody and then didn't hate them? Okay, so that's the emotional idea here. God is not endorsing human hatred. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 7, he's going to say, 
I forbid you to have hatred or animosity towards the Edomites. Okay, so this is not what's being described here the way you and I understand love and hate. I love you today, and tomorrow's like, meh. I hate you when I'm angry at you, and then tomorrow we get over it. Something else is being described here, and Paul points to it, that in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of their works, but because of him who calls, and you could actually replace that because of him who chooses. The, the idea here is that God loved Jacob. That's the, that means this, God chose Jacob before he was born. He could see to eternity future, and he chose Jacob. Now, why did he do that? You'll have to ask him. But I can tell you this, it wasn't because he was good looking and he was really good at serving God. I mean, here we are, a lot of time later, and his descendants are still struggling to obey God. And his saying, Esau I hated, was God saying, I am rejecting him. He even gives us insight. Why? Because, listen, he is going to forever despise my people. He is going to forever despise me. His descendants will always be wicked. And so this idea of God loves Jacob but hates Esau is the idea that God chooses Jacob and rejects Esau. Now here's why this is really important. What we're hearing from God is this. How have I loved you? Because my love is a choosing love. Your love is a reactionary love. You love people who are kind to you. You love people who make you feel good on the inside. That's not how I love. I don't react to you and decide if I want to love you. I choose to love you. I made a covenant promise and oath that I would always love you. Despite your rebellion. Despite the fact that you're doing all these things. I love you. And I chose it and I still choose it. And that's what God is pointing to here. I have not rejected you. You think about covenant love. Hope everything's okay. Sounds like an Amber Alert. Just in your own heart and mind, pray for that little kiddo if that's what it is. Um, and their family. God shows that choosing love to us in two different kind of familial illustrations. I'm going to give them to you. One is the nation of Israel. So before, I don't know how your process of bringing kids in the world worked, but for Hallie and I, we got to a point in our marriage where we said, now we want to have children. We prayed, and we started trying to have children. We chose to have children, is what I'm trying to say. It doesn't always work out that way, and that's okay, but that was just how we did that. So we chose to have a kiddo. Our, our first one was a miscarriage. And then our second one was Hudson. But I can remember, like, even before we even got a pregnancy test that was positive, something in my heart already loved that kid. I didn't even know if it was a boy or a girl. Like, there was already something going on inside me. I was already choosing to love the kid before I even knew what the kid was going to do or offer, before he could ever obey or disobey me. But I chose him. This is how God is expressing his love to the nation of Israel. It's why he calls them his children. I chose you. There's a second expression of this love, which is equally powerful and beautiful, and it is the choice of adoption. 
like a parent who says, hey, we are choosing to adopt a child and bring that child into our family. We're making a choice. We're not going to wait and see. We're going to sign the papers. We're making the decision. We're all in before this kiddo has a chance to earn our love. We already choose to love this, this child. That's choosing love. That's what God is saying here. I don't have a reactionary love. I didn't quit loving you because you didn't obey me 80 years ago when I sent word to the prophets. Like, yes, I wanted you to obey, but I didn't, I didn't change my mind. I don't change my mind. My love is rooted in a promise. Remember Jacob? I chose to love him before he was even born. That's how I love you, Israel. So when we think about God's covenant love, it's a choosing love. It's preemptive and not reactive. It's also an unchanging love. God does not change his mind. And it is an abounding and abundant love. It is not proportionate to what we offer in return. We need to hear that today. God's love is a choosing love. It's going to be hard for some of you to believe. Like, oh, then I'm out. I know what it's like to be chosen, right? Like, PE in, in elementary school, Red Rover time. If there's choosing going on, I'm the last. That's not the gospel. It's a choosing love. He chooses to love you. It's not reactionary. His love for you is abundant. It's not in proportion to how you give back to Him. If you came in today and your heart is not into Worship, and you're like, I just don't want to, like in your rebellion, I'm not endorsing this, but if in your rebellion you're like, I just don't want to love God today, he doesn't change his mind about you. He's already chose you. It's not reactionary. It's not in proportion to how much money you give. And it is unchanging. And so we can see this in the nation of Israel. So what I want to do is just ask the question then, what does that look like it where does that leave us i'm not i'm not israeli are you maybe you are maybe you are from jewish descent i'm not a child of abraham i can see the promise playing out generation after generation after generation from abraham through isaac through jacob all the way down to this generation that malachi is speaking to but where does that leave us verse five back in malachi says this your own eyes shall see this, speaking to the nation of Israel, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is where you and I come in. This is the promise of adoption. Now, God's fame, which is being expressed here, that his great is the Lord, his fame will be known outside the border of Israel. This has happened in moments in the Old Testament already, like when the nation of Israel was crossing over the Jordan, they were going to take possession of the land, like they, the, the, those of the tribes who were occupying the land were already hearing rumors about Israel and their God. So God's fame was being spread then. This was actually the mission that Jonah was on, to take the good news of repentance to the Gentiles outside the borders of Israel. But it wasn't until... Acts chapter 8, which we looked at a few weeks ago with the suffering of Stephen, that it actually became reality. Like Jesus tells his disciples, go take this good news to the nations. 
Start here in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, then Samaria, then what? Beyond the borders of Israel to the end of the earth. And in Acts chapter 8, the gospel is the means by which God's fame began to extend beyond Israel. The songs you sang today, if you're in Christ, are rooted in this truth. You have been adopted by a choosing God. You aren't natural-born Israelite. I'm not either. Listen to this promise from Ephesians chapter 1, and this is where we'll land today. And this is talking about you. 2023, Fort Worth, Texas. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. When? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined or he chose ahead of time us, you, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Um, for the theologically astute in the room, I, I love a good debate. And uh, the Calvinism Arminian debate is one to wrestle with. But my lament in that is that we miss the heart of God. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're off the hook. Just pay attention to what the text says. But there's those who will take this now and turn it into a big theological bait. Well, if God chooses us, then we don't choose him. And how does this work? And you get into all kinds of interesting, helpful, needed conversations. As long as we don't lose sight of what God said in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you. This is what God's trying to say through Ephesians. I've loved you. Like, I chose you for adoption when? Before I was born? Before that. Before the foundation of the world, I chose to love you. You. You don't have to be a Calvinist to believe what God said even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him and in love he predestined us for adoption that's what a good parent does predetermines I'm going to adopt you and then comes and does it now in the last book of the Old Testament the book of Malachi God's beginning by declaring the burden of his love for his people. I want to end with this, just some reasons why you may have a hard time believing that God loves you. They had their reasons, you have yours. Here are some of the reasons that I came up with that seem to come up on why we doubt God's love for us. My mistakes make me hard to love. Does that resonate with you? My mistakes make me hard to love. 
I'm not debating that you're hard to love. It's with me. But you're not hard to love for God. I can't keep my promises to God, so why would he keep his promises to me? I know you can't keep your promises to God. I can't either. But his love is not a barter system. He chose. There's already a period at the end of that sentence. Maybe you look back over your life and you think, man, I've acted more like God's enemy than his child. If he adopted me into the family, I am the rebellious one. Maybe true. I'm not an Israelite. Or like my sons when they're grounded from Xbox. God can't love me. Look at how hard things are. If he loved me, life would be going so much easier. I want to end with just this little paragraph I wrote to sum this up. Now, here's the thing. We've got to be able to to begin to let go of our human lenses to see this from God's perspective, to really, really feel the weight of this. And if you do that, you're going to begin to feel like God's love is too good to be true. The love of God is too good to be true, and it's still true. It's better than a fairy tale or a rom-com, or a romantic novel. God's love is a sovereign choosing love. God is choosing to love you before you did anything to earn it or pay it back. Like a parent who chooses a child to adopt and loves that child before the child has ever said or done anything, God chooses to love you. Now please hear me on this. In the book of Malachi, God is confronting the nation of Israel in their disbelief of his love. Today, he's confronting you and your disbelief of his love. He's answering the question that maybe you have in your heart. When have you loved me? When have you ever loved me? And his answer to you is, I chose to adopt you before the foundations of the world. I have loved you. Some questions for us to think about as we wrap up this week. First question is this. How does understanding God's sovereign choice of Jacob over Esau impact your perception of his love for you? Do you hear that and go, I must be Esau? I know that feeling. I, I sometimes do that too. How does God's understanding of, or how does your understanding of God's sovereign choice of Jacob over Esau impact your perception of his love for you? Next question is this. How has God demonstrated his love and faithfulness towards you even in the face of your own failures and challenges? If the nation of Israel had stopped and looked back over their story, there was plenty of proof that they were in the moment. So what if you did that? What if you look back over your story? 
Can you see the evidence of a God who loves you even in the midst of your failures when you had nothing to offer? How can you allow the depth of God's love for you shape your actions and interactions with others this week? If God loves you this way, how should that impact the way we treat each other? So how can you allow the depth of God's love for you shape your actions and interactions with others this week? And then this last question that if you don't have an answer for it, I want to encourage you to grab a prayer partner today or a pastor or elder. What steps can you take this week to move towards the love of God in your daily life? And maybe you know the answer, you're just not doing that. But if you're here today and you're like, I don't know what step I could take to move towards the love of God. Would you start by grabbing a prayer partner this morning and asking them to pray for you? Would you come grab an elder or pastor and say, hey, I need to talk about this. I don't know what step I could take this week. I'm going to pray for us now and invite our worship team back out and this will be a time of response. You can grab a prayer partner, you can stand and sing, you can stay seated and pray. Um, however God's spoken to you today and however you need to respond to this amazing, powerful message that God chose to love you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this. It's so hard for us from a human perspective, God, to understand the depths of your love. We read stories like Jacob and Esau and we, we put it into earthly terms and it gets confusing. God, thank you today for the insight to be able to, even if it's just a glimpse, to begin to see the truth of your love embedded in stories like Jacob and Esau. And God, we are doubly thankful that even though we weren't born as Israelites, children of the promise of Abraham, that God, you also chose to adopt the nations. And so God, we are grateful this morning that through the nation of Israel, Through your son Jesus, you made a way. You've already answered the question, how have you loved us? And we see the answer in Jesus. I pray now for everybody here who's present, everybody who may be listening online or listening later in the week, that God, through your word, you would speak a powerful and very intimate and personal declaration of love to each person listening. Would you confront our disbelief would you invite us, God, to move towards your love this morning? For anybody here that does not know you, God, we pray today would be the day of salvation, to take the first step of faith, to believe in it, to trust in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.